Welcome to New Life with Adam Camp. This podcast is a ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in LaGrange, Georgia. Please visit us on the web at rosemontchurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Apparently I'm not King Arthur. I can't pull Excalibur out of the rock, so... Nobody got the King Arthur joke? Nobody? Thank you. A little bit of comic relief. Forgive me, too. My voice is uh, going, and I'm battling a cold, as is everyone in the Grange. So I pray it'll last through this service and the next, but pray for me, if you would, please. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to study your word. We thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, speak directly into our hearts this morning. Lord, give us truth and understanding and clarity. And Lord, break our hearts in areas that need broken, Father. Shine the light of your truth into the darkness. And Lord, we pray through the power of the Holy Spirit working in our hearts and our lives. We will be transformed into the image of Christ. It's in his precious name that we pray. Amen. I want to begin this morning by reading a passage from Genesis chapter 5. And you can turn there if you want. You don't have to. But I want you to listen to what happens in Genesis chapter 5. Genesis 1 and 2, the creation of the earth. Genesis 3, sin has entered the world. Genesis chapter 5 is interesting because it's a genealogy of Adam. In fact, Genesis chapter 5 verse 1 begins, this is the written account of Adam's line. And so we get this picture of the genealogy of Adam. And so if you were to read through Genesis chapter 5, you would see... For example, in verse 3, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image, and he named him Seth. Verse 6, when Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enos. Verse 9, when Enos had lived 90 years, he fathered Canaan. And on and on the list goes. There's this genealogy in chapter 5. And genealogies can be kind of boring to us. At some point, we get tired of reading about names and who is the father and who is the son and how old they are. But if you skip on down... To verse 18, Jared fathered Enoch. Verse 21, Enoch fathered Methuselah. Verse 25, Methuselah fathered Lamech. Now, here's where it gets a little bit interesting because in verse 28, something happens that hasn't happened yet in Genesis chapter 5. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and he called him Noah. Now, we would expect at this point, based on the way and the pattern of this chapter, that we would now read about who Noah is going to father. And we do that, but before we read about who Noah is going to father, there's this little side story. There's this little commentary that we read in verse 29. So 28, when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son, verse 29, and called his name Noah, saying... Now watch this. Lamech is going to say something. None of the other people so far in chapter 5 has said anything, but I want you to listen to what he says. Out of the ground... That the Lord has cursed, this one, he's speaking of his son, shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Did you catch what he's saying there? Lamech says, I'm going to have a son, we're going to call him Noah, and I pray that he brings us relief from the curse. That's exactly what he says. Now the curse of Genesis chapter 3, where the Lord has cursed the earth because of the sin of Adam and Eve... Now, Lamech didn't say it like this, and he didn't explain it, and he probably didn't even fully understand the words that he used. But what he's hoping for, what he's looking for, what he's longing for is a Savior, right? Someone that will one day 
save us from the curse. Very interesting. Thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago, people were already hopeful for the Messiah. They already recognized the fallen world they lived in. They already recognized their sinfulness. They already recognized their struggle. They understood very clearly the curse. And they hoped that one day, someone would come and save them from the curse. Now we know based on the study of Scripture and based on our understanding of Scripture and and based on all that we've seen, that it would literally be thousands and thousands of years before the Savior would come. But after those thousands of years had passed, on a dark night, many centuries later, a young couple, having very little understanding of how their lives would affect history, quietly walked into Bethlehem and changed the world forever. (laughs) What an incredible story. The Bible doesn't tell us how long it took them to get to Bethlehem. The Bible doesn't tell us how long they were in Bethlehem before their son was born. But we know that after a period of time, Mary found herself holding not only her firstborn son, but the very baby that would become the savior of the world. After thousands of years of anticipation, after thousands of years of sinfulness, after thousands of years of darkness... God sent his son. And so we're going to talk this morning about a passage of scripture that explains to us exactly why Christ came to the earth. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to open to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, we're going to focus this morning on verses 4 and 5. But let's think about a little background of Galatians as you flip there. Galatians was written by Paul probably about 50 A.D. And the point of the book of Galatians is for Paul to explain to people that they are saved based on their faith in Christ, not based on the law. There were people during this time period that had argued that you were saved by fulfilling the Old Testament law. There were people that were arguing that you should be a Jew first and then a Christian. And Paul goes to great lengths in the book of Galatians to explain to these people that it's not about the law, it's about Christ. Salvation is found only in him. So, for example, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, Paul clarifies this. Know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we, too, have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. Because by observing the law, no one will be justified. One writer explained it like this. It's grace over law. It's receiving the blessings of God through faith as opposed to the curse which comes through the works of the law. And so we're going to examine this morning Galatians chapter 4 beginning in verses 4, and we'll study verses 4 and 5. And we're going to see a clear picture that, first of all, our salvation comes through Jesus Christ. But secondly, there are three very compelling reasons that Christ came to this earth. So Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. But when the time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, 
that we might receive the full rights of sons. Now let's stop there for a minute because there's some things I want you to understand about this text. As we think about the Christmas season and as we get excited about all that Christmas means, we probably begin to ask ourselves the question, you know, what's the meaning of Christmas? And the world kind of poses the question to us, why should we celebrate Christmas? And there's this movement in all areas of the world, it seems like, to take Christ out of Christmas. You're familiar with it. But if we ask the question, why did Christ come? It's not so we can share presents with each other on the 25th of December, although that's fun. It's not so we can have just a couple of weeks off from school, although that's great. It's not so we can have time off from work, although that's exciting. All those things are part of Christmas and all those things are good. But there's some biblical reasons that Christ came. And so I want to understand this morning from this teaching in Galatians 4, 4 and 5 and verses that follow exactly why Christ came to this earth. And so there's three truths I want you to see. Truth number one. Jesus Christ came to this earth so that we can, number one, have redemption. Through Christ, we have redemption. Now, the Bible says in verse 4 that when the time had fully come, God sent his son. There's this sense here that everything was right. There's this sense here that all the pieces were in place. And for whatever reason, at this very moment, the Lord chose to send Christ to the earth. Now, we probably ask the question, why didn't he come a few thousand years before? Why didn't he come a few thousand years later? And those are questions we're probably never going to fully understand this side of eternity. But there's some very interesting things historically that I think we ought to understand that helps us understand at least and kind of put together the pieces of the puzzle to paint a clearer picture of exactly why Jesus came. Now, we don't know exactly why he came then, but there's some things historically I want you to understand. For example, the time that Jesus Christ was born was known as the Pax Romana. It was kind of the peace of Rome. It lasted about 30 B.C. until about 180 A.D. And it was a time of great peace within the Roman Empire. So there was very little fighting. There was no civil war. Because of that peace, people could travel to and fro without worry about attacks. It was a time when a language, Greek language, the, the Koine Greek, which was kind of the common Greek of the time, was well known and well understood. And so people all across the region could read. So when Paul wrote in Koine Greek in the New Testament... The vast majority of the people could read it. The Romans had built great roads and so people could travel freely because there was peace. And there was a common language. People could travel freely all through the empire and see other people and trade and eventually share the news of Jesus Christ. And we see all these things begin to come into play. The peace and the language and the mode of transportation that make it a, 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 a prime time, a great time for Christ to come to the earth and for his message to be shared and for his word to be spread and for people to go throughout the empire and eventually throughout the earth sharing the name of Jesus Christ. I had an interesting conversation a few months ago with a guy who realized <clears throat> at some point in the conversation that I was a pastor. It's very interesting to me. When I have conversations with people, they'll talk to me one way until they realize I'm a pastor. And then sometimes they'll apologize for the things they just said and they'll talk to me very differently. I've had those conversations. It's always interesting to me why people would apologize to me. But this guy's talking to me and he realizes that I'm a pastor, and so all of a sudden the conversation turns spiritual, and he begins to ask me some questions about the Old Testament. And he said, what, what happened to people in the Old Testament before Christ was born? And I said, well, that's, a, that's an interesting question. What do you mean, what happened to people? And he said, well, what about salvation in the Old Testament? How were people saved in the Old Testament before Christ was born? I said, well, the Bible's very clear. 
They're saved in the Old Testament the same way they're saved in the New Testament, by their faith in Christ. Now, the people in the Old Testament didn't understand who Messiah was. They didn't understand exactly when he was going to be born or all the things he was going to accomplish. But you've seen, we've studied through texts and passages in the Old Testament that look ahead to who Messiah was going to be. To the fact that he would one day come, the fact that he would one day redeem his people from their sin. And so I said, basically, their belief and their faith and their trust and their hope in Messiah saved them. And so I took him to Isaiah 53, and we opened up Isaiah 53. And if you've ever read Isaiah 53, it's such a clear picture of who Christ was going to be, of his suffering and eventually of his death. And as we read this together, I explained to this guy that this was written 700 years before the birth of Christ. And I said, I want you to think about what it means that this was written 700 years before the birth of Christ, and yet this prophecy is completely fulfilled in Jesus. And as I was reading that, as I was explaining it to him, it's almost like a light bulb went off in his head, and you can kind of see his countenance change. And he said, well, if you're telling me this was written 700 years before the birth of Christ, and it's a clear picture of all that Christ was going to be and all he was going to suffer, it proves that Jesus really was who he says he was. And I said, that's exactly right. Because what you have to understand is, see, it wasn't just an isolated event. God knew from eternity past. He knew all the way from the beginning that one day when the time was right, when the time had fully come, he would send his son to die on the cross for our sins. And this is a picture, Isaiah 53 and so many others, are a picture and a reminder and a prophecy that look ahead to exactly who Jesus Christ was going to be. John MacArthur said it like this. He said, Christ's coming provided the restoration of lost sonship, the restoration of the lost inheritance, the restoration of the lost intimacy with God and fellowship and communion. The bondage was long and difficult when God said way back in Genesis 3.15 that there was one coming who would bruise the serpent's head It was a long time before he came, a long time, but when the fullness of time came, when it was the right time, when it was the perfect time, when it was God's time, he sent his son. But I want you to look back at verse 4 because we're going to delve in a little bit to exactly why he was sent. Verse 4 tells us that when the time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law. And I'm reminded when I read this passage back to Genesis chapter 3. We've talked before about the creation of the earth in Genesis 1 and 2 and the sinfulness of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. But Genesis 3.15 says this, as the Lord is speaking to the serpent in the garden, I will put enmity between you, that's the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. It's a picture of Messiah. It's a picture of what Christ would one day accomplish. It's a picture of the seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent. And I'm reminded of that when I read verse 4 in Galatians 4. God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law. Now the Jewish law is a very difficult thing. Some of you may be familiar with Jewish law, but in the Jewish law there were 613 very specific regulations that the Jewish people had to follow. And they believed if they could follow these 613 regulations, they could have salvation. And so the Old Testament is filled with stories about people making mistakes and God providing a way for them to atone for their sins. So if you were to read through Leviticus, for example, there are all sorts of examples of people sinning and making mistakes and God providing a way for their sins to be atoned for through the blood of the sacrifices. And we've read through those. But the Jewish people believed that in order to keep the law, or in order to be saved, they had to keep the law. So that's why you see this argument between the Pharisees and between Christ. 
They argued that you had to be a Jew and you had to keep the law to receive salvation. Christ argued that you had to have faith in him in order to receive salvation. But the interesting thing about the law and the thing that the law teaches us and the thing that the scripture says about the law is that the whole purpose of the Old Testament law was to teach the Jewish people that they couldn't keep the law. That instead they needed a savior. So even in the midst of their sinfulness, even in the midst of this law, it was looking ahead to who Christ was. It was looking ahead to the picture of the Messiah that would one day come and save them from their sins. In fact, Galatians 3, Paul speaking earlier in the book, says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. See, the picture is that because we can't keep the law, because we ourselves can't be righteous, because we can't work our way to heaven, we need a Savior. And that Savior is Jesus Christ. And the Bible tells us that in verse 5 of Galatians 4. When the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, verse 5, to redeem, and there's the word, to redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights of sons. Now, redemption is one of these big church words that we hear and is sometimes confusing to us. Let me just kind of explain it to you very briefly. Redemption in Old Testament times very simply meant to buy at a marketplace, oftentimes to buy something back. And so when they use it in the context of the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, Usually they're referring to purchasing a slave. So these people would go to the marketplace and they would buy a slave and they would bring the slave into their house and of course the slave would do work. But when we use it in the New Testament and when Christ uses it and we use it in means of salvation, it simply means that Jesus Christ, because of what he accomplished for us on the cross, purchased us and set us free from the bondage of sin. So to be redeemed means to be bought back to be freed from the sinfulness that surrounds us. To be purchased with the blood of Christ. Ephesians 1.7 says that in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Through Christ we have been redeemed. Now here's what that means for you. That means in the midst of sinfulness, in the midst of a world that seems to be spiraling out of control, in the midst of great darkness of the world, there's hope in Christ because he has redeemed us. He has bought us back. He has saved us. And the beauty of all this that we study and the beauty of Galatians 4 is that this didn't happen one day when the Lord woke up and decided to do something about it. It's a picture of his plan from day one of redemption. And here's what it means for you individually. From the beginning of time, God had a plan to save your soul. You need to understand that. From eternity past, God knew you. He knew who you were going to be. And he had a plan to save you through his son, Jesus Christ. Through Christ, we are redeemed. But here's the second thing I want you to understand. Look again at verse 5. He came to redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights of sons. See, we're not only redeemed. Christ didn't come just to redeem us. But number two, Christ came to adopt us. Through Christ, we are adopted Now, here's what you need to understand, and here's sometimes where people confuse Christianity. I want to be very clear about this. You're not born a Christian. Just because you go to church doesn't make you a Christian. Just because you tithe doesn't make you a Christian. Just because you're a nice person, that doesn't make you a Christian. The only way to salvation is through faith in Christ. Now, here's what we need to understand. And here's what Paul's saying to us. Before we're believers and followers of Jesus Christ, 
When we're sinful, we're living outside of the family of God. We're outsiders. Paul says, because of Christ, because of all Christ accomplished, and because of Christ's great love, he has, through his sacrifice on the cross, because he's redeemed you, he has adopted you into the family of God. Now, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, I have this. I want to put it on the screen because it's kind of a long passage, but I want you to listen to what Paul says in Ephesians. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Now this is the before. This is us looking from the outside into the family of God. Now look at verse 4. But because of His grace, because, excuse me, because of His great love for us who is rich in mercy, He made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace You have been saved. So Paul kind of paints this before and after picture for us. Before you were dead in your transgressions, you followed the ways of the world, you had a spirit of disobedience, you were gratified by the sinful nature, you were objects of wrath. But because of Christ, because of His sacrifice, because of what He's given to us after our salvation, we're now alive with Christ. We're now saved by grace. And the picture that Paul wants us to see in Galatians 4 is one of adoption. You were sinful living outside of the family of God, but because of Christ and all he gave for you, now you've been adopted into his family. I looked up some stats this week on adoption, and we've talked about some of these before, but adoption is a very interesting thing in our culture today, and it's a very interesting thing for our church because there are several families in our church that have adopted There are several families in our church that are currently trying to adopt. And there are families in our church that are praying about possibly one day adopting. But I looked up some statistics on adoption. There are approximately 147 million orphans worldwide. 147 million. 12 million children become orphans every year. That's about 32,000 per day. And every 14 seconds, a child is orphaned by AIDS. Isn't that amazing? Now, it's very interesting for us when we hear those stats to think about these orphans and to kind of put them in a box and to kind of set them outside of our thinking. But here's the way I think about it sometimes. What if something happened to me and my wife and my children became an orphan? It takes on kind of a different meaning for you then, doesn't it? How you'd want to provide for them as best you could. And you'd want somebody to care for them. You'd want somebody to love them. You'd want somebody to take them in out of being an orphan, out of being outside of a family, into a family and love them and nurture them and care for them. And adoption, this idea of adoption is such an incredible picture of God's grace in our life. It's a picture of all that he has done for us. Because every time a child is adopted, they're brought into a family, a family that's going to love them and care for them and provide for them. And it's a picture of our salvation. It's a picture of what Christ accomplished for us. God rescues us just like an adopted child is rescued. God shows his love for us just like an adopted child is shown love by that family. God saved us when we could not save ourselves just as an adopted child is saved when he or she could not rescue himself. It's a picture that Paul gives us of the fact that we were outside of the family of God, but because of Christ, we've been adopted in, not based on our own merits, 
Not based on our own accomplishments, not based on our own works, but because of Christ and his great love for us. Romans 8, 15 and 16 say this, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now just a side note here, just for a second, as, as we use this word adoption and as we use this word orphan, I know some of you are constantly and considerably and, and usually praying about missions involvement and how the Lord would use you and where he would use you and exactly where he's called you. You have an opportunity to do a lot of things next year. 2014 is going to be an exciting year for us. But we're taking two separate trips to Zambia in which we're going to work with an orphanage. So if you have a call to, to work with orphans or to help people in need, that's a great opportunity for you. I'm sure there are local needs you could become involved in. And I just want you to pray about how God's using you and how God would direct you and how God would, would lead you as we think through mission work. But specifically in this text as we think about orphans and as we think about adoption. But I want you to notice verse 6 of Galatians 4 now. The Bible says that because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit calls out, Abba, Father. There's this sense here of intimacy. There's this sense here of great love. There's this sense here of hope. It's kind of the idea of a, of a very personal way of speaking to the Father and showing him love because of what he's given us and because of what he's done for us. But now let's finish up in verse 7. Galatians 4 verse 7 says this. So, now because of all that Christ has done, because he's redeemed us, because he has adopted us. So, verse 7, we are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. Here's the third truth. Not only have we been redeemed, not only have we been adopted, but because Christ, we have been given freedom. Through Christ, we have freedom. Now, the word that Paul uses in this context and the word that's used oftentimes in the New Testament is the idea of a slave. You're no longer a slave, but you're free. And we read the word slave, and it's very difficult for us to understand, isn't it? We don't live in a time with slavery. We don't live in a time where people around us are slaves. We can read about it and study in history, but in the context of the world we live in, we've never really experienced it. But I think it's fair for us to put a modern-day spin on this and maybe use a different word. So instead of using the word slavery, let's use the word addiction. Because that's a word we understand, isn't it? We understand the addictions that surround us and the addictions that cause us to stumble and the addictions that hold so many people in bondage. I bet if we went around the room, every person in this room knows somebody or maybe themselves that has had some sort of a problem with addiction. Maybe it's to alcohol, maybe it's to drugs, maybe it's to pornography. There are all sorts of addictions that our society deals with now. But the truth of Galatians 4 says this, very clearly to us. Even though we were once sinners, even though we were once outside of the family, because the Lord has redeemed us, because the Lord has adopted us, because the Lord has given us freedom, in verse 7, we are no longer a slave. You don't have to be bound up to those addictions. You don't have to be bound up to that sinfulness. You don't have to feel like you're chained in. You don't have to feel like you're surrounded and can't do anything else. Because of what Christ has done, because of what Christ has given because of his great love for us, we are free from sin. Now, the world is full of darkness, isn't it? The world is full of very difficult situations and very difficult people. And we understand every day that we live and every moment we live, we're surrounded sometimes by the darkness. But I want to encourage you 
as we wrap, wrap up this morning and, and as we kind of think through this text and we think through Christmas, I want to encourage you to remember that even though you live in a world of darkness, even though you're surrounded sometimes with very difficult situations, because of who Christ is and more specifically because of what Christ has done, you can be light. You can be the light in the midst of darkness. You, you can share with people the redemption of Christ. You can share that we've been adopted. You can share the freedom from slavery and the freedom from sin because the bottom line is it doesn't matter where you are or what you've been through or what you're going through now, there's always hope in Christ. There's always hope in Christ. And so I want to encourage you this Christmas season as you do all the fun things that you're going to do with your family and your friends and time away from school and work to remember that hope, to remember all that Christ has given and allow him to do amazing and powerful things through your life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for our time together. We thank you for this text, for the clarity of this text, Lord. We thank you that you had a plan from the beginning. That it wasn't a mistake, Lord. It wasn't a last-minute decision that from eternity past, Lord, you had decided to offer a chance of salvation through Jesus Christ. Lord, he came to redeem us and to adopt us and to free us. Lord, I pray we would live our lives with that hope. We would live our lives with that truth. And I pray, Father, that because of all the things he's done in our hearts and our lives, that he would do a mighty work today. And that we would go into the world understanding the hope that we have and share that with all those that so desperately need it. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You can stand. Let me give you an opportunity for the next few minutes if you want to come and pray at the altar, if you want to accept Christ as your Lord and Savior, or you want to join this church, this is your time now as we sing together. Thank you for joining today's sermon. We would love to hear how today's message blessed you. Use the Contact Us link on our website at rosemontchurch.org. God bless.